0: morning, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker, who, as many of you know, and almost all of you, I'm sure, have met in one forum or another, is the new provost of Westmont College. Many of us, faculty and staff and students, prayed diligently for two years as we thought about the upcoming change at Westmont and then in the year of search, as as the faculty and staff formed a search committee. And I did not know Dr. Gady prior to his selection here, and I was not on the committee. But I was deeply impressed with the fact that the committee chose unanimously, that the committee uh, chose Dr. Gady to give a very strong leadership to our community in the years he- ahead. It's interesting when you watch an institution, the people they select tell you much about the values of the institution. Let me tell you just a little bit about Dr. Gady's background. He is a Westmont alum. I won't tell what year, he'll get to decide if he wants to do that. He was a sociology major here at Westmont. It obviously captured his attention because he went on to do his masters at California State University in Northridge. In sociology and then a PhD at Vanderbilt University in sociology and religion. He served at Houghton College as an assistant professor and then served as assistant associate and full professor at Gordon College until he came here to Westmont. He also served at Gordon as their provost. We feel a sisterly tie between schools, between Westmont and Gordon. And so at one level, we were sad to take Dr. Gady from them, but not too sad. I should mention that Dr. Gady received the Excellence in Teaching Award for senior faculty in 1982, 1987, and 1992 at Gordon and he was voted by students in 1986, 88, and 90 to be their select faculty member to give the last lectureship of the year, which at Gordon is a way of saying this is the student's choice of teacher of the year. His credits are too numerous to go on, but one which I think is very important is that in a 10-year period, he published six books. When Tolerance is No Virtue, virtue, PC Multiculturalism and the Future of Truth and Justice, Surprised by God, Life in the Slow Lane on the Benefits of Not Getting What You Want When You Want It, For All Who Have Been Forsaken, Belonging, and Where Gods May Dwell on Understanding the Human Condition, six books which were published over that ten-year period. He's also been a senior editor of a number of monographs, including Hunger of the Heart, Reflections on the Confessions of St. Augustine, and Leaving Cults, the Dynamics of Defection. So as you can see, he's been an active scholar, while at the same time an active teacher, and as provost and chair of the sociology department many of those years, an active leader in both the academic and in the larger faith community. And so I want to welcome Dr. Gady to chapel to his first series here. I know from students on consortium that he was also one of the favorite speakers in chapel at Gordon, and I'm looking forward to hearing him these next two days. Let's welcome Dr. Stan Gaty.
1: Thank you very much. read a short passage from Philippians, chapter 1, beginning with verse 9 through verse 11. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In the next two chapels, I want to talk about, hold on to your hats, knowledge. Hmm, deep disappointment. Mayday, Mayday. It's still early in the morning, Dr. Gady. Eyes are still glued. Minds are still stewed. Give us something to move us heart and soul, but don't give us knowledge. I know, I know. If I were sitting in your seats, standing in your shoes, I would probably have the same response. The word knowledge has a certain meaning for us, and that meaning connotes dry, detached, abstract, even irrelevant. But now let me read you something from the Bible, from Genesis. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived a child. Adam knew, and Eve conceived. So what do you think? Boring? Dry? Was Adam bored by this knowledge? Did Eve think this experience irrelevant to her daily life? I don't think so. I hope not. This was drama. This was action. This was, I'll stop. (laughs) One thing this was not is irrelevant. This was real life, heart and soul, and it was knowledge. Wait a second, you say. I'm mixing things up. In the first place, I was using the King James Version of the Bible, which everyone knows employs language strangely. And secondly, to know has a whole different meaning here. Let's face it. It's just a euphemism for sex. Adam and Eve had sex. The proper English during King James's reign couldn't say that, so they used the word new instead. That's all that's going on here. Well, if you think that, you're half right, but mostly wrong. You are right, the King James Version was written with the proper English in mind, which may be why it lasted for 400 years, by the way. Do you think the NIV will be the Bible of choice in the year 2400? I don't think so. So yes, the translators were trying to be appropriately discreet, but they were also trying to accurately reflect the original Hebrew, which can be rightly translated to know. In other words, the original intention had been to link knowledge with sex, or more specifically, knowledge with action. Indeed, to know in the Hebrew is precisely to understand with involvement. When you know something, you have had experience with it. Like a husband and wife for whom sex is not simply a physical act, but a deeply felt intimacy, so knowledge is never detached, irrelevant, or purely cognitive. To know is to understand. To know is to feel. To know is to do. So two things to remember right from the start. First, when I talk about knowledge, I'm talking about anything but boring. And secondly, as a general rule, you can probably assume that your everyday understanding of concepts like knowledge and wisdom is, well, just wrong. In fact, when it comes to these concepts, their use in the Bible sometimes doesn't even make sense. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, we frequently read The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, what do you do with that statement when you come across it? I'm serious. What do you do with it? You certainly don't believe it, do you? How many of you really believe that statement? You don't. We don't. What we believe is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of guilt. That we believe. The fear of the Lord is also the beginning of insecurity, of shame, of repression, and a hundred other emotional disorders but it is hardly something that produces wisdom indeed we have learned just the opposite to gain wisdom we need objectivity we need distance from faith distance from religion the fear of the Lord is not the beginning of wisdom in this culture it is generally assumed to be the end but then one day you go to a dentist which I remember doing at about the age of six I remember distinctly being told by my parents not to eat candy all day long, which I did, and to brush my teeth regularly, which I didn't do. I thought this was a pretty good life until the dentist. And of course you know why. The dentist saw all the evidence of my sinful nature and dealt with it quite ruthlessly. When he cleaned my teeth, it hurt. When he filled six cavities, it hurt. When he stuck the needle in my gum to give me Novocaine it hurt and when he lectured me from beginning to end well that was the biggest pain of all he was also six foot five and 250 pounds which didn't help in fact his name was dr. duck and he scared me to death this big duck no that's not right he scared me into action especially the action of brushing my teeth regularly Especially as my next appointment with a dentist loomed large in my future, I remember looking at the calendar where I had marked my next dental appointment in red ink. Red stood for blood, my blood, (laughs) which I knew would be dripping all over his office if I didn't properly brush my teeth and stop sneaking candy at night. And you know what? In a few months, brushing became second nature, and eating candy in the middle of the night became an oddity. And my next dental appointment became a breeze, didn't hurt. I got all kinds of praise for my good behavior and that big hairy hulk of a dentist became my friend. (laughs) I liked him. And as the years rolled along, I not only liked him, I respected him and thanked him for saving me from a life of crime. (laughs) Just kidding. But you get the point. My fear of the dentist, which he rightly instilled, produced wisdom, knowledge which was good for me and everyone around me. And that's pretty basic, right? In fact, it's downright obvious, as is the statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Indeed, it's so basic that in most cultures around the world, whether they read Genesis or not, it is just assumed. So why do we have such trouble with it? Or to rub it in just a bit more, why do even Christians in this culture have trouble with it? So much trouble that we have to reinterpret the statement to make it make sense. Isn't that right? What do we do to make the statement make sense? We say, well, the Bible doesn't really mean fear here. It means reverence or respect or admiration or regard or consideration. So what is really meant here is that waving to God in the morning is the beginning of wisdom. I don't think so. Fear here certainly does imply reverence, but that's not a euphemism for being a nice guy. Fear in this passage also means, well, fear. Not a pathological fear, but a healthy worry about consequences. A fear which drives you not to a life of paranoia, but the pursuit of that which is good in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because doing the opposite will get you into trouble. It leads to Novocaine, cavities, or worse, while doing what's right is good. In the long run, it's better for you. It's the wise choice. Now, I say all this not to make you fear God, actually. Fearing God, after all, is not the end of wisdom, only the beginning, but to help you understand this enterprise which we are engaged in at Westmont. This is a college, as you know, a very good college, a Christian liberal arts college dedicated not to teaching you ephemeral things like how to succeed, but important things like what is true and right and good. That is knowledge and wisdom and understanding, things the Bible says we ought to seek and know and dwell upon. But, and this is one of those huge conjunctions, but... When I use the word knowledge here, I am not talking about what our culture means by knowledge, but what the Bible means by knowledge. And in the Bible, knowledge is never dull, never irrelevant, never disconnected. In fact, knowledge is an action word. Remember Adam and Eve. It is full of all the emotions of life like joy and pain, heartthrob and heartache, wonder and pathos. Knowledge is always relevant, always connected to the rest of life and always has consequences. Knowledge bears fruit. Now, with this in mind, I want to look again at the prayer that Paul prayed in Philippians, which I think is precisely the prayer that the Lord has for us at Westmont and his Christian community in general. Listen to it again. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God." Now, the first thing you've got to notice here is what an entirely strange prayer this is in these days, right? If we were saying it, we would say, My prayer for you is that your love would grow more and more in what? Love. Or we might say, My prayer is that you would grow more and more in knowledge. But Paul says, My prayer is that your love might grow more and more in knowledge and insight. How come? Let me answer with a story. And this is a true story. Once upon a time, that's how stories begin. Once upon a time, there was a boy who grew up very privileged. He was privileged to have a loving family. He was privileged to grow up among people who followed Jesus. He was privileged to grow up healthy, with few physical problems, and a wealth of social and educational opportunities. He was reasonably bright, got along well with others, a decent athlete, a privileged fellow. But there is a part of this story that isn't quite so pretty. A fly in the ointment, so to speak. The boy was a slug, a sinner. And he took all this privilege for granted. In fact, he spent a great deal of time complaining to himself that he didn't have more. He wished that instead of being a decent athlete, he could be a great athlete. He wished that instead of being wealthy, he could be very wealthy. And most of all, he wished that all this success would just come easily, that he wouldn't have to work to become successful at life, but that he would just sort of, it would sort of just land in his lap like winning the lottery. This last trait, the desire for things to come easy, was especially a problem in school, since learning always comes hard. As I mentioned before, he was reasonably bright, and a lot of things did come easily for him. But the further along he got in school, the more difficult things became, and the more he had to decide whether or not he really wanted to study. This turned out to be a real problem, because on the one hand, he really enjoyed certain subjects. History, math, literature with the right teacher had a special fascination for him. But on the other, he didn't want to work for his enjoyment. And besides, he had a lot to do, people to see, places to go, things to do. Study was so time-consuming. The upshot of this conundrum is that he turned out to be a pretty good student some of the time, when he wanted to be, and pretty ordinary the rest of the time. His grades were all over the map, A's when he got inspired, B's and C's when he wasn't. He had terms with straight A's and terms when A's were not to be found. Mostly he got lectures. Lectures from teachers who told him that he wasn't working up to his potential. Lectures from coaches who said he wasn't putting enough in practice. Christians who said he wasn't practicing his faith. Lectures which he knew contained a bit of truth, but also got awfully predictable. Someday I'll get serious, he thought, but not quite yet. I'm young. I've got places to go, things to do, people to see. All that came to a crashing halt during the summer after his sophomore year in college. He was on vacation on the California coast when the car he was driving collided head on with another. The details of the accident were never very clear. Four lanes narrowed down to two. There was road construction in the area. It it was on the ridge of a hill. The driver of the other car might have mistakenly assumed that he was in a passing lane when he was not. It's hard to figure out what happened. The results of the accident, however, are crystal clear. While most of those in the other car escaped with minor injuries, the boy himself was very seriously hurt. His face, leg, and ankle were crushed, and he was in surgery the entire night the doctors trying to reconstruct in one night what God had done in 20 years. He was in critical condition for hours after the operation, in the hospital for two months thereafter, and wound up being confined to a bed for another five months. His body, in other words, was in pretty tough shape. But that was nothing compared to the condition of his mind, for there is one other detail about this accident that you need to know. The boy had someone with him in the car, at the time of the accident, a cousin by the name of Paul, who was also his friend. And Paul, well, Paul was killed. The boy didn't hear about Paul's death right away. It took a few days for his body to mend enough for the doctors to allow such news to reach his heart. But hear it he did from his pastor, who gently and carefully delivered the news. But though the pastor's voice was gentle, the words polite, the weight of their meaning was crushing. As the driver of the car, the boy knew that he was responsible for Paul's death. People tried to tell him that the accident was not his fault, that he shouldn't bear the burden of Paul's death. But he knew better. He knew that he was the driver, that Paul was his passenger, and he was by definition responsible. Upon hearing the news, the boy went into a valley, a pit that seemed to know no end. The accident had already taken away everything he had come to rely upon, all those privileges of security, ability, and ease, which he had once taken for granted. But now it had done something worse, much worse. It had confronted him with his own irresponsibility and laid the burden of another's death on his heart. One day in the depths of that valley, he was told that Paul's parents wanted to see him. Paul's parents, his aunt and uncle, whose son had died at his hand. Why do they want to see me, he thought, his mind racing to a 100 conclusions, but his tongue too swollen to speak? I am the reason for their suffering, the vehicle of their pain. What could they possibly want with me? But now something happened that absolutely confounded all worldly wisdom, as well as the boy's expectations. When his aunt and uncle came to see him, they were not angry. They were joyful. In fact, when they walked into his room, their gracious smiles nearly filled the place up. And while the boy was still wondering, why are they smiling, his aunt and uncle were on the move, walking to his side, reaching out to him, holding his hand, and finally uttering words the boy found absolutely unimaginable. You know, they said softly we love you boy in fact we think of you as our son now too you know more words followed but the boy did not hear them all he heard were the words of adoption of grace of unmerited favor we love you you're our son now too words he did not deserve but which were given to him nevertheless and the boy The boy was changed forever. Now, before I tell you how he was changed, there are two things you need to know about this story. One is not too important, but the other is as important as anything you will ever hear in your life. First, the unimportant point the story I have just told you is not only true, it is, in fact, my story. I am the boy the slug who grew up privileged, who lost his privileges and his pride in an automobile accident and was changed forever by an act of grace. But now let me tell you the really important point. So are you, and so is every follower of Jesus Christ, for we have all come short of the glory of God, all been lost in our pride and privilege and all who follow Jesus been redeemed at great expense and adopted into God's family by the most incredible act of grace in the history of humanity. That's the story of the cross. That's what it means. The only question remaining for each of us is, what difference has it made in our lives? Well, let me tell you what it did for me. First, as is probably obvious, if you know me. It didn't make me perfect. It did not eliminate all anxiety or self-doubt, nor did it result in immediate healing or recovery. Indeed, I spent the entire next year recuperating from the physical and emotional scars of that accident. In other words, there was no instant miracle cure for all my frailties and ailments. But that act of grace did one thing which absolutely revolutionized my life. Are you ready? It made me Grateful. Grateful for my aunt and uncle, to be sure. But more than that, deeply, deeply grateful for the love of Jesus Christ. For his sacrifice, for his forgiveness, and for the grace of God which brought it all about. And it gave me in my bones something I should have gotten the day I decided to follow Jesus. It gave me a grateful heart. And what does that do? Well, I think it does exactly what the Apostle Paul prayed that it will do. Which is why I told you the story in the first place. It will cause your love for God and one another to grow. To grow in knowledge and understanding. And that will produce fruit. You see, the first thing that happened to me when I returned to college after the accident was not perfection. It was a deep hunger for knowledge, for learning. I came to Westmont my junior year absolutely thirsty for the first time in my life. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know about God's word. I wanted to know about God's world. I wanted to know everything I could about the life which God had so graciously entrusted to me, about its history, its literature, its politics, its biology. I'm getting carried away. But you get the point. Suddenly the question for me wasn't what do I choose for a major? But how can I choose just one? And now I want to say something very dangerous, so listen carefully. What happened to me is not unique. I think it is what always happens to a grateful heart. Always. Now, that's a dangerous thing to say because it's dangerous to extrapolate from one's experience to others. But you see, I'm not basing this on what happened to me, I'm basing it on the truth of the gospel of Christ. When the love of Christ sinks in, when we really understand what God has done for us, we will find the desire to grow insatiable. We will become students, not professional scholars necessarily. I don't mean that all of you are destined to become academics, though some of you should. But I mean learners, people who want to know in the biblical sense. And knowing in the Bible always leads to action. On Friday, I will be saying something about the action part, the fruit of righteousness, as Paul calls it, that results from knowledge born of love. But right now, I want to draw two quick conclusions, and then we'll be out of here. First, please remember that your calling at Westmont is a very high one and a profoundly biblical one. Growing deep in knowledge and understanding is precisely what your love for God ought to produce, and that's precisely what Westmont was designed to do. This is a liberal arts college. That means we focus primarily on ends, what I call the good, the right, and the true. Not means. This is not a place designed to give you techniques for worldly success, but wisdom for life, to satisfy the cravings of a grateful heart. How many people do you know who, when they encounter Christ, immediately want to learn to become a millionaire? I'll bet not one. The value of such a thing at that point is almost laughable. What you want knowledge of immediately is that which is good and right and true from God's perspective. You have a thirst for his word, and you want to see all of his creation from that vantage point. And that's exactly why Westmont exists, to pursue that vision. It is a high calling for which we ought to thank God daily. Second, and this is a word of warning, this high calling for the Christian can never be disconnected from the love of God or love for God. If it is, we will find ourselves in great trouble. The quest for knowledge is a good. It is not a means to an end, but a good in and of itself. But it does not stand on its own. In fact, the pursuit of knowledge disconnected from the love of God is a disaster. Why? Because it becomes a God unto itself. And anything that replaces God becomes an idol, a destroyer. Have you ever wondered why colleges and universities are so full of arrogant people who have little time for others and are totally consumed by pride and their own projects? Well, I'll tell you why. Because too often the wellspring for such pursuits in our culture is not God's love, but the desire for success, status, and respect. And as a consequence, you discover wonderfully gifted people, professors and students alike, who are consumed by their own egos, desperately trying to prove their own worth and demeaning everyone else in the process. Friends, Westmont cannot be like that. Can not. If your pursuit of knowledge leads you to pride or arrogance, then you need to drop down on your knees now and plead for forgiveness because knowledge pursued out of the love of God leads in exactly the opposite direction. It may be that the modern scholar who learns something grand will think, wow, what a great scholar am I. But the Christian who learns something grand about God's creation can only drop to his or her knees and say, wow, what a great God I serve, and that's the truth. What a great God we serve, rich in love and grace towards us, the undeserving. My prayer for all of us at Westmont is that we would be a people known for our grateful hearts, eager to learn, eager for our love to grow in knowledge and understanding, and eager to give God the glory forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, as we sit here in the quietness of this moment and look into our hearts, some of us know that we we are the arrogant ones who have used knowledge to puff ourselves up We confess that in so doing, we have shown ourselves to be, in fact, ignorant. Ignorant of precisely the truth we claim to know. For arrogant attitudes and false pride, Father, forgive us. Some of us, however, are not ignorant about what we have learned, for we have learned little, at least much less than you would like to teach us. We are not thirsty for knowledge, even though we may have straight A's, because we have never responded to you with a grateful heart, nor known the joy of eagerly pursuing your truth. For hard hearts and dull minds, Father, forgive us. Help us this day to root ourselves in you, to catch a glimpse, just a glimpse, Father, of what you have done for us in Jesus, to know in the depths of our being how high and wide and deep is your love for us in Christ. And we, what will we offer you in return? Only this. Thank you. In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen.